All right, so week seven on church membership. Um, before we get there, I believe there's something at the end of chapter six to go through. Give me just a moment. Yeah. So I didn't put this in your notes, but we'll just go through this quickly. This is from the end of chapter six, another of those sidebars. Uh, and this one is titled, How Should Members Relate to Pastors? And he starts out and says, Every church member will stand before God's throne and give an account for how he or she worked to protect the gospel in the lives of his or her fellow members. See Galatians 1. That said, the Holy Spirit has made pastors and elders the overseers of the church. Acts 20, 28, Titus 1, 7, and 1 Peter 5, 2. That means pastors or elders represent the church's work of oversight in the day-to-day life of the congregation. Submitting to the church often means submitting to them. Broadly speaking, how should members relate to pastors? The first point he makes is he says that members should formally affirm their pastors. So in connection with that, would you agree that that is necessary? Does there need to be a formal recognition, or is that just a necessary evil uh, in, in society for purposes of things like tax exemption and all that kind of business kind of stuff? Is that the only reason to formally affirm pastors? No. Does this have to look like an ordination council? Are you guys familiar with What's that? Every day, no. Okay. Do you, do you know what an ordination council would be? You're familiar with that idea that there's a church trying to pick a pastor. They call a bunch of area pastors or seminary professors or people who know the Bible in to ask a whole bunch of questions, and then at the end of it they say, yes, we think, or no, we don't think, that kind of thing. Uh, the one challenge, not the one challenge, one of the challenges with that approach is, um, I'm not sure I've ever, I think I've heard of maybe one instance in which an ordination council says, no, we don't think that the guy is supposed to do pastoral ministry. But here's the question, what's the church supposed to do then? Because who's actually deciding whether he should be serving that church? The church should be the ones deciding that, Right. So if the church says, we want input from these other people who know the Bible well to examine them on areas of theology, personally, I really think that part of the conversation should happen a lot sooner and not as the last step. Because if he's not on the same page theologically, you should figure that out early on, right? Um, Because otherwise, you could theoretically come to this situation where the ordination council says no, and the church says, yeah, but we really need somebody, so they vote him in anyway, which is not really a great situation to be in. And so the route that you guys went with me, which I think is maybe a more practically helpful route, is the deacons, with input from seminary professors and other pastors and so forth, asked me a whole bunch of questions. And we talked through all those things, and we said, yes, it seems like we're on the same page on these theological issues. Uh, Do we agree that there's maybe some things we've been talking about in the statement of faith that we want to reword because maybe they could be a little clearer? Yes, but every pastor before me had said that too, so that wasn't a new thing or a different thing, right? Uh, And then instead of having a formal ordination council, essentially what the church did was to license me for ministry, which I think is in some respects more helpful because it's not me going from here and saying, I have the pastor's club card, I can go be a pastor somewhere else. I think that process should happen every time you go to a new place for a number of reasons. One is, and we've talked about this some in the last few months, you will see a theological trajectory in people's lives. Some of it is they don't believe the Bible, and at the end of their life, they do. And some people, they believe the Bible or seem to, and at the end of their life, they don't. 
So there need to be these checkpoints along the way, and much like with membership, each time the membership process happens, each time the calling to be a pastor or deacon process happens, there needs to be some measure of reevaluation and not just assume we know stuff because that's the case it was five, ten years ago. Um, now, again, this stuff is not laid out in a super formal way in the New Testament. This is just some, these are just some practical observations. And so he points out, um, since Christians are responsible for what they're taught, church members are responsible for choosing their leaders, the final affirmation is the churches, and uh, he talks about that sort of thing. Um, his second point, and I'm reading these. These are not me trying to get you to do stuff on my behalf. I'm just reading what's in the book. I want to be clear on that. He says members should honor their pastors, um, and he refers to 1 Timothy 5.17 and 5.18. One of the tensions with this is the whole question of should pastoral ministry be a paid profession? The danger of it being a paid profession is then it becomes very professional, and by professional I mean it's seen just like any other job, and some of the sacrificial nature of what we see Paul modeling, for example, in 1 Thessalonians, I think it's 2, like a father earnestly pleading with his children, like a mother tenderly cares for her children. We can, it's easy to lose those aspects of ministry when a pastor comes to see it merely as a job. And it's easy for a pastor to say, well, as long as I fulfill responsibilities, I'm doing that well. And it's fascinating that the qualifications for being a pastor comes down to three things. Desire, you want to do it. Qualification, but not skill set, character. And then affirmation by the church. We see examples of the church commissioning different people for ministry. What has often happened, and I think seminary can be a good and helpful thing, Bible, college, formal training of various kinds, can be a good and helpful thing, but the danger is if we come to equate has a degree with loves God, we're in a terribly, terribly dangerous spot. Because there are a lot of people who are good at academics and terrible at ministry um, for a variety of reasons. And so I think we need to always stick with what the Bible says, which is there needs to be a desire, there needs to be a living up, constantly striving, imperfectly, but pretty close to the mark of living up to the qualifications for being a pastor, and there needs to be a recognition by the church. And so the honor is not... We're supposed to honor government officials because they're appointed by God, right? So maybe there's a degree of that in connection with the church. But ultimately the honor ought to be because someone pours their heart and life out in ministry, not because they hold a title or a position. And that's where I think it's really easy for, for guys to just get in this mode of, I'm in charge because you put me in charge, and now I have to do everything I say, and there's a lot of pride, and there's a sense of, I don't need anyone else's input, I never sin, or if I do, I'm not going to admit it to anybody, all that kind of stuff. And so I think the honor aspect, there needs to be honor to the degree that it is earned and appropriate, right? Um, connected with that, the next one, members should submit to their pastors. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith and have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority, for they must keep watch of you as those who must give an account. Do this so their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. So, along those lines, what is the source of authority for a pastor? It's not because I say whatever to you. 
And that's another danger. It's very easy if there's someone who is respected to say, here's this Bible teacher, and so we follow what he says because it's him saying it. And it should never be that. It should always be, we follow what he says to the degree it corresponds to what the Bible says. Which then is more work because we have to know individually what the Bible says to be able to evaluate what he's saying. And this is less important on minor points of interpretation. I'll just throw one out there in 2 Thessalonians 1 and 2, it talks about the Holy Spirit. Well, it, it doesn't even say the Holy Spirit. It says the one who restrains will restrain until he's taken out of the way. Is that the Holy Spirit? Is that human government? Is that some combination of the two? The passage doesn't specifically say. Can we have a disagreement on our interpretation of that passage and still all fellowship with one another? I think so. But if someone starts saying things like, yeah, I don't know if Jesus was actually God. You guys should know the Bible well enough to say he needs to be rebuked and if he doesn't repent of rejecting these core gospel truths, he needs to be gone, right? That is, that is where I think um, it's this weird situation of the pastor is supposed to lead the church, but the church is supposed to hold the pastor accountable, right? Particularly in areas of doctrine and in areas of character. If I started, I don't know, going out and stealing that would be a very serious problem, right? You guys should confront me on that. But like for sin in the life of a church member, if I don't spend enough time with you guys to know what's going on in your lives, if you don't correspondingly spend enough time with me to know what's going on in my life, these things aren't going to happen the way that they're supposed to. So um, uh, members should pray for their pastors. I think this is kind of obvious because if we're supposed to pray for one another and if there's all these responsibilities that are supposed to be happening in the church, I think it's a natural application of that pray for one another. Members should bring charges against disqualified pastors. And that kind of ties in what I was saying a moment ago. There's the submission to the degree that the authority is from Scripture. There's a praying for all the temptations that may be faced. And then there is the holding accountable, bringing charges against disqualified pastors. Since they are out front, Paul protects leaders by requiring two or three witnesses to level a charge against them. That said, the congregation should not allow an elder who has disqualified himself to continue serving. Then to follow up on that, members should fire gospel-denying pastors. When false teachers entered the Galatian church, Paul did not correct the elders, he corrected the church. When pastors begin to deny the gospel or teach other heresies, God calls church members to fire them. So along those lines, if there was significant doctrinal deviation, now, we have to be careful here. If I was studying something and I said, you know what, this is what the statement of faith says, this is what I think these passages are saying, let's talk through this and have a conversation about it. I don't think that that's a case to say immediately, you need to fire me. But if I lay out the case for how I think that we should say something differently than has been said in the statement of faith, and you all hear it and you're like, no, we don't believe that, we don't agree with it, then the honorable thing for me to do at that point is to say, and I'm going to go serve somewhere else or do something else, right? Um, but when it's a clear and unrepentant uh, twisting or rejection of some aspect of the gospel, I mean, the church discipline process applies to pastors and elders and deacons like it does to everybody else, right? Uh, so whether it's a question of character or whether it's a question of doctrine, the church has to hold those who are in leadership accountable, is the bottom line. Any, qu qu uh, any quick questions on those six points? 
or thoughts? Philanthropy questions. I think we would generally agree with, with what he was laying out there. Okay. So then I think that's helpful context then for chapter 7, which is what happens when members don't represent Jesus, right? So chapter 7 then, what happens when members don't represent Jesus? He lays out this scenario of uh, a man who um, came to the U.S., had been in the U.S. for several years, a fellow Christian witness to him. He got baptized as a member. He was very generous. He was very involved in the church. And then, um, in some way, it came out that he had come to the U.S. illegally. It says, opinions were mixed about how to respond about to the illegal immigration status since the U.S. government was not enforcing the pertinent laws. But one thing was clear. Christians must not lie to their employers by falsifying their employment status. Jesus does not lie, much less persist in lying, nor should his representatives. So, this particular church says, we feel like this is a serious enough issue because he refuses to be honest about these things with the people he's working for and with the church, that that is then grounds for church discipline. So, first things, what do you think in response to that scenario? Is that a serious enough issue for church discipline if someone refused to at least acknowledge their position? Why or why not? Bob? I think at minimum it's in accordance with the law which is there to govern some of the decisions that we make. Sure. So at minimum it's that. Uh, obviously if his conscience is not Okay. Rob? Uh, it's a tough question. Um, but he did admit or confess that he was a reborn at some point. So there's okay. some okay. proof for it there, but it doesn't speak to spiritually. Yeah, and it doesn't say how they became aware and all those sorts of things. So, I mean, I don't think it's the job of church leaders to play the role of investigative reporters and private detectives to try to. Uh, figure out what's going on in people's lives. But sometimes just in the course of life, things come out. So I'm trying to think of a good example that might be more relevant for us. Let's say, let's say that it came out that someone hadn't filed taxes in 20 years. Maybe they were in a position of need, and so the church says we're going to help them, and then somehow it came up in that process that they hadn't filed taxes in 20 years. Uh, because, for example, maybe they were getting paid cash for everything, and so they didn't want to be bothered with reporting it and all those sorts of things. Um, there, I think we should allow for a possibility of ignorance. They didn't know that they were supposed to do it. They were just following what everybody else was doing. So that's one possibility. It's a starting point, potentially. Uh, what's the hesitation for that person going to be in making that right? What consequences? Yeah, it's going to be expensive. There's going to be penalties. There's going to be ongoing penalties, potentially. There's going to be the IRS is now going to be watching that person. I mean, there's a lot. It's not just as simple as pay the money, be done, go on with life, right? 
there's all of these associated things that are going to be following that person at least for a while in connection with that decision intentional or unintentional that was made but should we counsel someone in a scenario like that just to say well you know God's good with it don't worry about it move forward with your life Jonathan Okay. And I did that for a few years. IRS finally caught up with me and said, look, you need to do something about this. <laughs> so I thought about it, and, and um, I, I finally came to the conclusion that even though it's wrong, we should be contributing something. And even though it's not what we would like and it's not done right, we really don't have any other choice but to go along with it. <laughs> sure. You know, because we can't really control it because we're not the ones administrating it. Sure. So it's a difficult thing. Yeah. And I, I think... I think we would need to, I think it would be helpful to help someone in that situation walk through all of the, all of the aspects of it. There might be a case for the church saying, hey, we'll help you find a lawyer. You can talk through the specifics of it so you know exactly what you're getting yourself into. You need to pray about it and ask God to help you make the right decision, all those sorts of things. Um, but I think if you have a scenario where... Um, Zacchaeus goes and pays back four times what he's stolen from people. I think it's hard for us as Christians to make the case that if we're actually Christians, we just sort of sweep everything under the rug of, of the past that hasn't been dealt with. Now, I think we also have to also acknowledge the reality that we cannot fix everything from our past, right? Uh, if, particularly prior to salvation, someone commits adultery or steals or whatever else and let's say the person you stole from has died you can't ask that person's forgiveness let's say the person uh, who's committed adultery the other spouse has gotten remarried there's no possibility of reconciliation in that sense there's there's complicated difficult issues connected with being in a sinful broken world right but an attitude where we know there's some specific thing that is wrong and we're unwilling to deal with it because it's difficult or painful, um, that's a dangerous position to be in because it says in Proverbs or Psalms or Proverbs, maybe both, that if we confess our sin, that um, basically the one who hides his sin won't prosper. In 1 John it says, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin. That doesn't mean that you, the church has to know every last sin that you've ever done because the church does not stand in a position of being uh, of a confessional booth. That's a pagan, unbiblical idea. Our, those things need to be confessed to God and they need to be confessed to the people that they have impacted, right? So, um, yeah. Norma? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, moving on then, because we're... In broad terms, church discipline is one part of the discipleship process, the part where we correct sin and point the disciple to the better path. In more specific and formal terms, church that should be discipline is the act of removing an individual from membership and participation in the Lord's table. The church wants the person to come and hear God's word preached the church is saying it can no longer affirm the person's profession of faith, and so it refuses to give the Lord's Supper. 
All right, so let's start Matthew 18. Turn over there with me if you would. And let me get someone to read Matthew 18. And we will start with... Uh, let's do 15 through 20. Who wants to do 15 through 20? Jonathan, thank you. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. All right, so we're going to make some columns here. So Matthew 18, what's our first step? What's that? Okay, so um, we could say private confrontation, right? How many people are involved in this? Yeah, one here and another one there, okay? Second step. Okay, take some people from the church. So we could say group confrontation, right? How many people are involved here? Yeah, two to three plus one, right? What's the next step? Okay. So the church confronts now. Okay, so how many are involved in there? Depends, yeah, yep. All right, and what's the fourth step? Or? Or restoration, yeah. Yeah, so either expel or restore, right? According to the response of the person to these previous three steps. Because um, we often assume if it gets to this point that it's going to go here, but it doesn't always. All right, um... I think 1 Corinthians 5 is our next passage. Any quick questions on this? This one's, I think, pretty clear. Yes, Devin. Yeah, so I think you could have a private conversation in a public place if that's your concern. Um, later on, we're going to get into some things, questions like, when should a church practice church discipline over what issues? I do think there's a degree of wisdom of, I don't think it would be inappropriate for if you, let's say you thought there was something that I was doing wrong. I don't think it would be inappropriate for you to necessarily have a conversation with Evan about it and then you guys come talk to me. Um, even though the general pattern is, is this, Bob? I was gonna say, like you said before, Generally, you're confronting somebody or being confronted by somebody that is aware. 
Right. So if there are two people that are aware, whether it's a husband and wife or some other people, then I can see how it still could be two people do in that initial confrontation if there is sure. something like that. All right, so let's turn to 1 Corinthians 5, because I think this is going to help answer some of what we're talking about here. 1 Corinthians 5, and we need to read... Um, Okay, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5. Who wants to read that for us? 5, 1 through 5. Devin, thank you. How do we reconcile 1 Corinthians 5 with the pattern of Matthew 18? Let's look at this. Was there a private confrontation Possibly. that we are aware of? No. No. Was there a group confrontation that we're aware of? At least a discussion. How so? The fact that Paul found out about it. Well, we don't know if the person was there. Um, I'm just going to, let's just, let's just do this. Instead of an X, I'm just going to put a question mark. We don't know if there was this. We don't know if there was this. It doesn't appear that there was this, which means what? We would think that it would mean that you then can't do this, but why does Paul say he needs to be, uh, verse 13, remove the wicked man from among yourselves? Rob? Okay, so gravity is part of it. What's another aspect of it, Bob? Everybody knows. Everybody knows about it. All right, so theoretically, we have two people, we have a handful of people, we have the whole church. It's gotten to this point. Who is aware of it potentially at this point? Not just everyone in the church, but everyone where? In the community, right? And going back to the nature of the sin, this is something that the Gentiles don't even generally do, right? So, uh, when it says that he has his father's wife, the fact that it says it's not his mother makes it seem like it's potentially he's committing adultery with his stepmother or some sort of arrangement along those lines. Um, people argue about that. The main point would be he's not supposed to have his father's wife behaving as though she's his wife, right? That's, that's a kind of immorality that even the Gentiles were like, eh, they were pretty immoral in a lot of ways, but they generally recognize that there weren't certain things that weren't supposed to happen within families, right? So because of some of the factors here are that it is public and that it is seen as severe or serious, and the fact that as best we can tell, if these things happened, they didn't happen in the right way or they didn't happen quickly enough, we're here, and so everybody knows about it and all these sorts of things, so Paul's response is, send him out. Now, whose fault was that situation? The church and the guy who's sinning, right? 
He's clearly sinning, but the church clearly failed at their responsibilities. And we say, well, but maybe they didn't know all these sorts of things. How long was Paul at Corinth? I'd have to check the reference, but I think it was three years. So what are the odds that Paul explained Matthew 18 to them at some point in those three years? Pretty decent. So the problem doesn't seem to have been they didn't know things. It seems to have been they're like, eh, we don't really want to follow it. Part of the reason for that is potentially the issues that Paul is confronting them about earlier in the book. What were they all caught up in? Pride, jockeying for position, I'm better than you factions, like all these sorts of things. So if that's their focus, um, they're probably not going to be too concerned about the spiritual state of everybody in the church because pride and open sin tend to kind of go hand in hand, right? So, Paul says, ideally all this should have happened, but we're at this point, you've got to do something. Why? Because it ruins the testimony of the church to the watching world. He says in 1 Corinthians 5, Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so you may be a new lump. And then he clarifies, verse 9, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. And then he says, what's the scope of this? He's not saying try to make everyone in the world who is immoral not immoral because that's not the job God's given to you. Actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person, covetous, idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Now, the eat with such a one, um, we're going to touch on that more as we keep going through this, possibly even next week, because there's a lot to unpack here, but probably is not saying you can never talk to that person. I don't think this is the Amish concept of shunning, particularly in the context of families, but I think it's pretty clear that the nature of the relationship has to significantly and seriously change, right? So we, I think we can at least say that from this passage. Um, it says, those who are outside God judges, but remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Um, what's the end point of this process in 1 Corinthians 5? Anybody know from 2 Corinthians? Okay. And I'm looking for um, the passage here. Um, let's see. Yeah, chapter 2, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, and not to say too much to all of you. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary you should rather forgive and comfort him, otherwise such a one might be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. Wherefore I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. For to this end I also wrote, so I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also." For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Now, is this absolutely and without a shadow of a doubt the same guy that's in 1 Corinthians 5? No. But given the fact that Paul made such a big deal about it in 1 Corinthians 5, 
there does seem to be a connection here. At the very least, it's a close parallel, right? But I, I tend to think that it is the same guy that we talked about in 1 Corinthians 5. So what seems to have happened is the church does what Paul said. They expelled him. And now Paul's having to write them again and saying, you need to welcome him back in because he's repented. The expelling him has brought him to a point of repentance and there needs to now be restoration. So that's 1 Corinthians 5. All right. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 3. Turn over there with me if you would. Um, start in, let's start in 6. Uh... Let's do 6 through 10 and then 11 to 15. Who wants to do 6 through 10? 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 10. Bob, and who wants to do 11 to 15? 2 Thessalonians 3, 11 to 15. Who can read that for us? Uh, Mary, so Bob and then Mary. Okay. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give we used to give our, give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. Okay. And then Mary ten through fifteen, please. Well we hear that there are some which walk among you deserters, working not at all but are busybodies. Now them that are such we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. If any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. All right. So what, what are some things that are going on here? The first question I wrote up here, which is, is it just an issue of laziness or is it an issue of rejecting apostolic truth? So verse 14 says, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, but the specific issue, it says, leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition. But then he says the example was not eating anyone's bread without paying for it, not being undisciplined, not being lazy. If anyone's not willing to work, verse 10, he's not to eat either. So, um, is it, what's that? Yeah, so there are people who will argue that the reason for this is a misunderstanding of the timing of the return of Christ that led people to say, we're just going to sort of wait around until Jesus comes back, which sounds like a good plan, except we don't know when that's going to happen. 
Uh, we don't know 100% if that's what was going on in the Thessalonian church. It makes logical sense. I'm not sure that there's enough in the passage to say absolutely that's what's going on. The specific clear statement in the passage is there are people who are not working but who are expecting to eat and becoming a burden on the church. Um, why was that such a big deal and why does Paul tie in the idea of apostolic doctrine or even example? How did Paul behave when he was there? Paul worked. Did the church pay him while he was there at Thessalonica? No, Paul was supported by other churches on most of his missionary journeys, occasionally by himself, the Aquila-Priscilla tent-making incident that we see at one point in Acts. Um, but in general, Paul did not, Paul made it a specific point not to certainly demand or even necessarily to accept contributions from the places where he was planting churches because he didn't want there to be any confusion about what he was there for. And so Paul's own example, work hard, and then that can support you. And the things that he taught them, if someone doesn't work, then he shouldn't eat. Those two things together should have led people to say, I can't be lazy, I can't live my life in this way. And so that's the basis of the confrontation. That's the sin issue. This, these people are being lazy. And not even so much that they're being lazy, although that's bad enough in and of itself, but that laziness is then leading to what? At the end of verse 11. Being busybodies, right? So now they're participating in gossip and meddling and affecting the unity of the church. So we'd say, well, I mean, if somebody doesn't want to fix something on his house or doesn't want to show up to work and just has this constant string of jobs, I mean, what's the big deal on that? The problem is it's not just that. It's that their gossip and interference in the lives of other people is leading to disunity in the church. Uh, and God is very concerned about the unity of the church. And so all of those issues collectively make this a much bigger deal than we might tend to think it is at first. So, does it seem that there was a private confrontation? Well, I think we have to put a question mark, right? Because we can't really tell for sure, right? Okay. Does it seem like there's a group confrontation? We don't know. I mean, there's a sense in which you have Paul plus some have told us, right? So we're going to put a question mark there too. But there's a degree to which maybe we're at this stage, right? This one kind of got missed. Somebody didn't come alongside these people and say, what you're doing is not right. Paul becomes aware of it, and Paul, along with those who made him aware of the situation, now theoretically are confronting them about the problem by means of the epistle. Now, again, this is kind of a unique situation because it's not as though we're going to have a letter or an epistle from somebody who has apostolic authority to come alongside and say, hey, these three people in your church need to get their act together. So I'm not saying this is the way that it should happen today, but I think there is a pattern here of saying, all right, so maybe this first step got missed. We can come to this point and say, well, we can, there can at least be a group confrontation. And I would say that this is in verse 12, right? 
Note what Paul points them to. He points them to things that he's already taught them, and he points them to, verse 13, an encouragement. Don't grow weary and well, weary of, of doing good, right? Don't grow weary of doing good. So there is an encouragement and there is an exhortation. So the sin is being confronted at a point prior to the necessity of expelling someone from the church. Now, verse 14, if he doesn't listen, take special note and don't associate with him so that he will be put to shame. You know, verse 13, uh, is it 13? Verse 14 seems to be somewhere kind of in between these two points, right? The whole church becomes aware of the situation and there is a degree of not associating. Now, Verse 15, I think, is where it becomes difficult. Do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. There's a couple of possibilities here. One is that it hasn't actually got to the point of him being, ex him, them, we don't know if it was men or women or both, being expelled from the church. That's one possibility. Another is that the nature of the sin is serious enough to be dealt with publicly, but... Um, but not, um, but not so serious that the person would be considered an unbeliever. But that seems hard to reconcile with. If you get to the point of exercising church discipline on someone, it seems like it's a serious enough thing that we are not really sure if they're a believer or not, right? And the third possibility is, what is the attitude? And I think the, the manner or the attitude is possibly the safest and most contextually consistent option, which is to say, when someone is being expelled from the church through church discipline, our goal is not to see that person in the worst possible light. They're not acting in a way that we can confidently say this person is a believer, but at the same time, our hope is that that person genuinely is. So our disposition is, again, to try to get that person to be restored. And what does that look like? If someone is acting like an unbeliever, what do we do for unbelievers? We pray fervently for them. We point them to the truths of Scripture. We point them to the hope of the Gospel. Is our goal a vindictive, self-serving, you made my life difficult, so now we're going to kick you out and never talk to you again? No. So again, there's a number of perspectives on what verse 15 means. I struggle with the ones that say, oh, well, they're kind of in the church, but they're kind of not in the church, because it just it doesn't seem to fit with the other passages. I think it's a thing of it's moving toward them being expelled from the church, but the goal is still restoration with a hope of repentance, much like we see in 1 Corinthians 5 connected with 2 Corinthians 2. So if we were to lay out um, what does church discipline look like? In an ideal world, church discipline looks like Matthew 18. You go and talk to someone. If there's no repentance, several people go and talk to someone. If there's no repentance, the whole church goes and talks to someone. If there's still no repentance, then they get expelled from the church. There's always a hope for restoration. But Paul acknowledges in 1 Corinthians 5 and 2 Thessalonians 3 that sometimes these steps get entirely missed, as in the case of the church at Corinth, or not followed ideally the way they should have been. 
Like, ideally what should have happened is the church should have dealt with the things at the church in Thessalonica before Paul got involved. But instead of dealing with it in the church, rightly or wrongly, it doesn't say exactly in the context, but I think they, they jump over and they drag Paul into it before they followed all the steps, right? So now Paul says, here's what needs to happen, here's where it's headed, but here's the manner in which you're supposed to do it. Does that all make sense? Any questions or thoughts on that? And We'll pick up the rest of it next week. I'm sorry, Rob. I've seen some of this in action before, but I can share an example of many years ago, probably 15 years ago, where two brothers um, were both alcoholics, and so I thought it was really important to talk to them about it, so I talked to, you know, some people, pastor, whatever, a couple people, just, should I, how do I, so on and so forth. And at the time, one got very offended, and when I said, I believe you're an alcoholic, because they flat out alcoholics. The other got offended, but, and then, so one of them even recently said, you know, I'm really drinking, I need to stop. Mm. And the other one just, so sure. it was just something I thought I should do, tried to do it correctly, but it didn't go to the next step. And there's alcoholism in, in here, but I mean, a, a church wouldn't necessarily address that. I didn't take it to the next level, I guess. I did yeah. try to talk to people about that. Why is constant drunkenness incompatible with the Christian life? One of the scriptures says you should, you know, even in here, what we study today, it talks about drunkenness. Yeah. Um, same thing with, um, uh, think about uh, Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 where it talks, Ephesians 5 in particular it says don't be drunk with wine but be filled with the Spirit. There's an incompatibility between being ruled by something and being um, in submission to the Spirit. I think that we should start getting a little bit concerned about things when someone even says, well I can't follow God if I haven't had my coffee for the day, right? Because Paul says there's lots of things that are good but I won't be mastered by anything. If someone has a severe and unrepentant case of gluttony. I think that should be confronted. Um, if someone says, you know, I just, you know, I, 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 I have retail therapy, I just go and buy stuff all the time. I mean, that person to some degree is living an undisciplined life. We tend to pick on certain ones that we think are really bad, right? You know, whether it be adultery or whether it be I mean, that's really the big one that most churches practice church discipline on, and everything else we tend to just kind of sweep under the rug, right? So I just think there's this reality that we need to both take all of these different kinds of sins more seriously than we do, talk to one another about them much earlier than we do, and recognize that there has to be room for, we don't expect immediate change in someone's life because we realize how in our lives sometimes to deal with things, but we can't let things go on forever either. So there's a lot of wisdom that needs to be involved in a process like this. So we'll talk about some of the more practical specifics uh, next week in the second half of this, but let's pray. Dear God, thank you for the opportunity to sh for us to look at, look at these truths. I pray that you give us wisdom to take sin seriously in our own lives, the lives of those around us, 
to always have an attitude of humility that the goal is restoration, not any sort of vindictive spirit or, or pride or self-righteousness, but the goal is that we would in unity walk with you, not tolerate sin, but walk as those who've been changed by your spirit uh, because we know Jesus in Christ's name. Amen.